Blog Talk Radio. Good evening to all you Metsian folks. This is the converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metsian podcast. You know, I was really jamming on that one today. I, I don't know. It just was really, really moving my head on that one. Got to give a shout out to Adam Spiegel for his fantastic Metsian theme. Uh, uh, without further ado, uh, let's get right to the show. There's a lot to talk about. I hope all of you are staying safe and healthy out there. Lots going on, uh, uh, coronavirus and beyond. So uh, before we bring on our featured guests, I'm going to introduce our uh, my co-conspirators, as we like to say, and uh, let, let's let's go just probably really technically blocks away from me uh, in in you know the the grand United States scheme of things, and that's Michael Colant and Bensonhurst. While I'm in Flatbush, how you doing? Uh, what's going on? How am I doing? I'm doing well, chugging right along, uh, Sam. Glad to hear it, you know, staying essential, as you, you like to say. Uh, and, and um, of course, we also have Rich Sparago up in Milford, Connecticut. What is going on, Rich, up, up in your neck of the woods? Well, hey, Sam. Uh, hey, Mike. Um, and, it, well, you know, it's, um, like I've said many times, it, it's a beach town, and people are not sure if they should be going to the beach, and there are police on bikes, and, you know, it's just a weird world we live in. You know, you see police everywhere, and what they're, what they're looking at is, are you staying six feet apart from that one, and are those blankets six feet apart? And, uh, you know, everything is only take, everything is take out and sit outside. You can't go inside a restaurant. It's just a very bizarre scene. But, you know, we're making it day by day like everybody else. It has been a bizarre scene, especially with, like you say, the restaurants, you know, here in New York, especially on the weekends, and especially with it as hot as it was yesterday. Uh, I mean, there's definitely people on the streets with these these drinks outside these bars. They're not staying six feet apart. And, you know, there's only so much the cops can do to enforce every single bar that they, they go through. But you, you could tell yesterday uh, with it as, as warm as it was, and, of course, there's protests going on, um, even outside of the protest, there were people. Sta- there were cops standing on the corners, uh, uh, probably just making sure that the big crowds going through on the sidewalks, uh, walking from the park or walking away from the park, are, are just staying six feet apart, or at least not coming within four feet or less uh, from the people that they're passing. So it, it's a very strange world indeed, and also not too far away from the the Brooklyn squad here. Uh, is a, a a man from Brooklyn, but currently in Staten Island, which we we, uh, we 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 made sure to specify earlier on our shameless plug, uh, Bedford and Sullivan podcast that he was on earlier in the week. That is formerly of Crane Pole Society, Mr. Stephen Keene. How you doing, Stephen? I'm doing good, Sam, Mike, Rich. It's great to talk to you guys again. It's been a while. It has. That that it has. Uh, we're glad to get your perception. Be- before we get into you know the nitty gritty regarding whether or not we're going to have baseball uh, anytime soon, how are you doing? How how are you holding up through this whole coronavirus thing? 
Uh, I'm you know, health wise, I'm doing fine. My family's doing fine, so that's a big plus right there. Uh, I'm able to work from home. Uh, I had to go to my office downtown Brooklyn on Thursday to do a few things, and it's just kind of strange when you're downtown, and usually it's the hustle and bustle on that, that part of, of Brooklyn, and there's hardly anybody around. And even in the office, usually have you know, uh, I work for, for the D, for DEP. We have inspectors. They're not allowed in the office. It's just the supervisors who they let them go in. And we have a customer. The customer service is on our floor for the for the water department. That's closed. So it's just kind of strange that, you know, what you're used to every day, it's it's not it's just not there anymore. And you just hope and and hope that uh, something breaks with this and with all the other stuff that's going on. If, you know, everybody comes to their senses and tries to come together as one per, as one people, one country, make everything a whole lot easier. <laughs> That is for sure. I mean, with you know, we, we, of course, don't like to go down too much of a political rabbit hole here, and we have before uh, at certain points. But, but that, that is the, the bottom line, I think, just to touch on it briefly, is that there's something somewhere in the middle. I think there's, unfortunately, a non-understanding, not a misunderstanding, but a non-understanding from either side. And, and there needs to be a better conversation, a better a, a, a just a better overall everything. Emotions need to need to be, you know, taken. Go go. Don't don't follow with your heart. Follow with your head in some some instances. So um, that's that's really all I will say specifically on that subject uh, regarding all, all the protests going on out there. And um, there, you know, we, I, I mean, on on a lesser serious note, in some fashion, although we've talked about here how important force is to to just keeping people sane. Um, Rich, I'm going to go to you first for, for where we currently stand. Uh, uh, obviously, I don't think there's too much coming out over the weekend regarding everything. I think they, they do typically tend to save this stuff for either the beginning of the week, middle of the week, or, or whatever. They, they don't go, they don't really bring anything new out about this stuff on the weekend. So I'm pretty sure that we're basically where we are from, from uh, uh, Friday. And there seems to be an impasse, but things are starting to make progress. What, 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 where is it, uh, you know, in your understanding of things? Well, yeah, I, I, what I'm hoping, and of course we really don't know, but what I'm hoping is happening is behind the scenes, level-headed people are saying, you know, and we all read an article by, uh, by Verducci that basically said, look, there are two ways we can go here. You know, if the game is shut down because we can't get the safety piece right, you know, and get everybody tested to everybody's satisfaction, then not a lot of people are going to complain about that because we all get it. But if the reason in, it, in any way is tied to money, that we can't figure this out because of money, um, this game is, you know, attendance has dropped seven years in a row, not by a lot, you know, and I, and I can't say when the doom and gloom people come out, you know, baseball's losing popularity. The industry made $10 billion, our revenue was $10 billion last year, so please with that. But it's not as popular as it was when Steve, Mike, and I were kids. That is a fact. And so for a sport to go dark for what would be 18 months if it had to wait until next spring training, it just, it's not good for any sport. It would be particularly bad for baseball, who, you know, which has either plateaued or is on, you know, on the downside a bit. It just would not be good. 
especially if the other sports get going, you know, it would be pretty easy to forget about baseball. And, and I hope people are behind closed doors understanding that and doing what they can to control leakage of information and also, most importantly, get going toward a deal. So to answer your question, Sam, no new news. Um, what we're seeing now is a lot of posturing. We're seeing, you know, the Kurt Schillings of the world saying we're not going to take another pay cut. What we did see is that the Players Association on Friday asked for financial records. We don't know what they are, but some financial records from the owners to validate their position that with no fans in the stands, that, you know, the financial picture will be what they're portraying it to be. So there is that, which tells me at least they're talking and they're considering things. Um, so there's that piece of it. So I don't know when the owners are going to provide that information or if they are. So there's that happening. And then there's the calendar, right? Um, June 1st was supposed to be the date. Well, that happens in three, and a, three hours and 50 minutes. So that, that's uh, coming and going. Now they're saying if they have an agreement by June 10th, maybe they could get a spring training in and get going by July 1st. A um, couple more things for you guys to comment on would be the players are saying, well, we want to make as much money as we can, so why not do 100 games so we get you know, our prorated salaries over 100 games, more for you to televise, more revenue for you. The owners are adamant that the season has to end October 1st because the playoff contracts are you know, with, with the networks and you know, with football and all that. They've got it all figured out for October, and they're afraid that they'll lose their, their cash cow. And I didn't realize how much of the national TV money is tied to the postseason. It's, it's, like, it's like 80% of it. You know, th those Fox games you see on Saturdays are nothing, and ESPN, nothing. It's all the postseason. They make all that money in one month. And they're also concerned about a second outbreak. So players are saying, let's play more games. Owners are saying, no, 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 we can't do that. Uh, financial records hopefully are going to be sent over, which, again, tells me they're talking uh, and my final thing I'll say is this, and I want you guys to comment on this. I, I had this epiphany about the whole thing. The NHL says, we're going back. You know, no, no more regular season. We're going to jump into this 2014 thing, and okay, great. NBA says, you know, oh, you know, we're, we're going to go back too at, at some point. Okay. What's the one thing that's missing? The one thing that's missing from all of this is a date. The NHL did not say we're going back on this day. NBA did not say we're going back on that day. Hasn't happened, right? My thought is these leagues, these three leagues in particular, are all waiting for the other one to get going to see what their testing protocol is like, how they're going to manage this. Because as far as I'm concerned, it makes no sense for a sport like hockey where you really don't want to be playing this thing in August to not have a date on the calendar, NBA not have a date on the calendar. I think they're purposely waiting for another one to go first and see how it works out. So that's kind of where it is from my perspective. So I'll go to you next, Mike, um, and, and tackle what Rich was talking about. Sure, uh, but I'm, I'm going to quote Tom Berducci here, uh, and, and it's something that we were talking about earlier. Um, both sides are digging in. Both sides have stumbled. Owners uh, first made the gaffe of floating the idea of sharing revenues 50-50, but never actually made such a formal proposal. 21 of the 30 owners were not in the game when baseball lost the 1994 World Series over the idea of a salary cap based on revenue sharing, but they should still know the idea is a complete non-starter with the union. Mike, you know, in a nutshell, like we were saying earlier, know your history. Know your history, Sam, and for those historians out there, uh, you know that labor strife 
is part of baseball since the 1860s. That's why this game went professional. A long battle between amateurism and professionalism. But here we are. The major sticking point is disclosure of information. It's a matter of trust. And that's what happens in a collectively bargained situation. It's not that clear cut. It's not that simple. These two sides are so adamantly opposed to each other, historically and presently. And, and, you know, I don't think the relationship will ever improve insofar as the economics of baseball are, are, are involved. The union has no problem striking agreement with the owners for as long as they divulge information. The owners want them to agree to a 50-50% split, but of what? An ownership-created number. The ownership is simply asking for validation. Well, define revenue for us, define these revenue streams for us, and define what 50% is, and let us see it. And the, and the owners refuse to do that. And I don't think they will. And too many times we've seen leagues, ball, hockey, we've seen them more than willing to just stop the entire process. NHL doesn't have a, a, a problem per se because they lock the players out for an entire season to get their way. So they don't have the obstacles that baseball has. The NBA... They're ahead of the curve. They're almost a 50-50 partnership with full disclosure, and they're happy. The NFL, you know, the players' union is the weakest in professional team sports. But what those other sports have and baseball doesn't have is a cap. I don't know where this fits into it, but the bottom line is the players' union doesn't trust the owners, and the owners don't trust the players' union. Now, you say that there are a lot new owners that weren't a part of the 94 labor strife or even prior to that, and I would agree with that. And I would also agree that that's a problem. And I would also say that the union is very well-versed and educated in the long history of player versus ownership. Going back to 1871 in the first professional league, going back to 1876 when the shift went from player professional professionalism to club-owned and, pro, and promoted professionalism. And then, of course, the reserve clause and things of that nature up until Marvin Miller came around and free agency and things of that nature. So there's a long, long, long history here that they aren't, either party that is, are willing to put aside as demonstrated it doesn't look like they want to budge. These are old, old, old rivalries that every so often come to fruition. And here we are. Here we are now, and here we're going to be at the end of 2021 when this contract expires. Uh, it, you know, it's unfortunate that this is it, – it's a battle of principle. You know, we say billionaires versus millionaires, and it's unfortunate for them that this is a battle of principle. You know, because here in the world of the proletariat, you know, that battle doesn't translate well with us. So that's something that they need to hammer out behind closed doors 
and, and not let anything get out to us because it just doesn't sit well, especially with what everything everything that's going on, especially with over 40 million people unemployed. People don't want to hear that. So, in truth, the owner saying, you know what, we may cancel the season altogether, to me, that's a far more reasonable conclusion to this whole mess than continuing to hammer out matters of dollars and, and, and nonsense. Put that in quotes. Go ahead, Sam. So much uh, to go off of. Um, Stephen, you and I talked about Marvin Miller, uh, albeit off air, earlier in the week. And um, But but I'll, I'll present before going to you about everything. Uh, no specific question. I, I will frame it this way. Um, let's say I said to you that I was going to share with you half of my earnings from Postmates today. Now, mind you, this is hypothetical, everybody. Sundays are a good day. But you don't know how much I made, Stephen. What if I only made $25 and you were about to only earn 12.50? You would like to know that, wouldn't you? <laughs> like, it, it, this, this seems pretty, you know, simple. Well, that's the whole problem with the owners and players. There's always been, as Mike said, from the beginning, from the first time they put a paycheck in a player's hand, there's been a lack of transparency from the owners and a lack of trust from the players. I mean, look at the biggest, one of the big scandals of all time in baseball was the Black Sox scandal. That was over money because Charles Kaminsky would not pay his players you know, a, a fair wage that they ended up having to get, knowing that known gamblers could get to them in order to throw World Series games to make extra money. Uh, we've seen this time and time again, that with every time a collective bargaining agreement expires and negotiations happen, it always goes to the last minute. It's always the 13th hour before something comes up. Or like in 1994, when the season is, is done, when they cancel the season and cancel the World Series. What you're seeing also is there's lack of leadership on both sides. I don't know Tony Clark's or whatever his background is besides that he was a baseball player, played for the Mets at one time, I know played for the Tigers. That's about all I know about him. But there's no Don Fear. There's, there's no Marvin Miller. There's no Michael Wiener. Those three guys were key in, in getting – is key in building up that player's association to where – it was, it was the best players association in all of sports to the point where Don Fear now is the, is, is, is the head of the National Hockey League Player Association. From what I've read, Don Fear and Gary Bettman have a tremendous relationship. Now, think back to the years when Don Fear was running this union. He was the guy that when he would come on camera, he would never smile. He just had that, that, just that blank look on his face. And baseball fans couldn't stand this guy. Now, he never had a great relationship with, with Bowie Kuhn or with uh, Bud Sealing. But here with the National Hockey League, he's running their PA. And him, they say him and, and Gary Bettman are like best friends. They're like, they get along, they talk, they negotiate. It, you know, you see this all the time in other sports. They, these are other player associations and owners. They negotiate, but they're not, they don't, they do it behind closed doors. They wait until they have an agreement. The problem you have with, this, with the baseball players 
and the owners. The both of them are two old Yankees. They don't stop talking outside. They don't. They they let everything out. You know, like uh, Sam, we did. You know, we did your podcast, the uh, the the Bedford uh, Avenue podcast. They're like the old ladies in Brooklyn who live on the first floor and put the pillow outside the windowsill and stare at everybody to see what everybody's going and and just yap all day. <laughs> that's that's the wow. players and that's the owners. They're two old ladies sitting in a window yapping, and nothing's getting done. Now. Here's the problem that they have to look at. The NHL, and like Rich said, they, all, all the NHL and the NBA have come out and said, we're going to come back. They didn't tell you when, but they said, oh, we're coming back. We're working on a plan. We're coming back. The problem you're going to have is, say, if the NHL and the NBA come back around the same time, say they come back in the middle of July, they're going to be in a playoff mode. They're going to be in tournament mode for a playoff to crown a champion. Nobody's going to – if you're not – in, in spring training, if you're not on, a, you know, spring training 2.0, getting ready to start a season, nobody's going to care, okay? Nobody's going to care about baseball because they're going to say, well, there's a championship tournament in these two sports. Now, when those two sports are done crowning their champion, guess who's coming next? The NFL is opening the training camp. Once football starts, you know, baseball could just, you know, they might as well just pack it in. Because now you have to worry that these three sports are, are moving forward. Not only they are, you know, you look at the soccer leagues. The, MS, the MLS is going to hold their tournament in Orlando, in, the same, in Disney World, the same as how the NBA wants to. You're seeing the big soccer leagues in Europe. Uh, Bundesliga has started; they, they, they've started their league up. Uh, Serie A in Italy, they're the big one. They're going to start. And now the Premier League in England said that by the 16th of June they're going to start. They're going to have matches. All these sports are moving forward. The only sport that's not is baseball. And I don't understand how this, they, these two entities, the, the, the owners and the players, can't look at this and say, listen, you know, the, the parade is passing us by. Everybody's moving ahead, and we're stuck here. Because the owners, to me, are like the landlord who, when the lease is up on a business in, one, in, in a building, they want to double or triple the, the rent of the, of the tenant. And the tenant says, well, I can't afford that. And they'd rather have you out and have an empty storefront and take the tax break than to have somebody in there. That's to me, is how the owners are. Now, in March, they made an agreement. They told the players, listen, we, you know, when we start up, we're going to prorate your salary. We're going to prorate what you're making. And the, and the players were said, no problem. All right, whenever we play, we'll prorate it. Now the owners come out and saying, "Well, I know we agreed on that, but we're going to do, we want to do it this way." I, how do you you make an agreement, and now you're going to renege on that agreement because now you say that you want to have these sliding pay scales, where Mike Trout, who makes thirty two million dollars, he's only going to make about ten million dollars. So this way, the 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 rookie making five hundred thousand will only be knocked down to four hundred thousand. So now what the owners look like they're doing is we're going to put the elite player against the, the guy, you know, trying to make it as the 26th guy on this team to get to, to get him to get paid. And they're trying to pit player against player. And I don't, it, that's not going to work with this players association, but they've got to like, and the other problem you had is like you're reading in these articles, there are some owners who just, they, they would rather like I, the analogy I make with the landlord with the empty storefront, they're looking at the, they don't, they don't care. There are owners who don't care about the game. 
They could care less. They're looking at bottom line. If I don't, if we cancel the season, how much do I lose? X amount. All right. If we start up the season and play 82 games and I got to pay these guys a prorated salary, how much do I lose? Hmm. I lose less if we don't play than if we play. Guess what? I don't want to play. That's what they look at. They look at the bottom line. There is none of these owners care about, I don't know. I won't say none of them. I would say there's a lot of them who don't care about baseball. The commissioner doesn't care about baseball. When he talked about the World Series trophy being some piece of tin that they give out, that shows you this guy has no clue. Two is baseball has a big problem. The Astros won the World Series, and it's tainted because they cheated. The Red Sox won the World Series. It's tainted because they were cheating. You don't even have a – you can't even celebrate the team that won your championship. You can't celebrate it because it's a a tainted championship. There's so many negatives going towards baseball. The games, you know, I, I, I mean, we, I think we all remember growing up, baseball games were just about two hours, two hours, 10 minutes, two hours, 15 minutes the most. They used to start games at night at 8 o'clock. They'd be over by 10, 10, 15. Now they start games at 7 o'clock. They're not over till 1130. It, it, you know, to go to a game, if you, if you work for a living and you go to a game at night, you, you, you can't go to work the next day or you got to go in late because by the time you get home, it's almost time to go to work. You know, they, they, they don't understand all this. They, you can't have rain delays for three hours. You can't have rain delays where your game is at 7 o'clock and people are waiting to see if they should get in their car to go to the game that they have tickets for, and it's 5 o'clock, and you're like, well, it's pouring rain here. I mean, are, we gonna, are they going to play? And then when you get to the ballpark, our oh, game's canceled. You can't have that. And this is the problem that they have. They, 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 they can't get out of their own way. There's no leadership on the owner's side, there's a little bit less leadership on the player's side. And, you know, the, the only they, if somebody has to get in there and bring both these sides together and say, listen, you need to get this done. Because, I mean, with everything going on in the world today, we, we, we don't even talk about the virus that much anymore between the unrest that's going on. We need something. This, this country needs something. You could be the heroes. You got the, the owners of baseball players can be the heroes right now. They could come to out tomorrow and say, listen, we're putting all our differences aside. We're getting started. We have medical people. We're going to test our players every day. We're going to make sure everybody stays healthy, and we're going to be playing baseball on the 4th of July. You say that today. Not only is that the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do for the country. Rich, I'm, I may go in many different directions before I, I pass it back over to you. Um, but, and, and in fact, I, I, I have already forgotten exactly where I was. It's just, Stephen, you, you make so many good points that I, I've already spaced on something that it brought up in my mind while you were talking. But I, I'm, I, I'm looking at Tony Clark's Wikipedia page. Uh, at one point I went off that tangent while, um, while we were talking. And in terms of the Baseball Players Association part, it says throughout his playing career, Clark was involved in Major League Baseball Players Association on various levels. He attended an executive board meeting for the first time in 1999 and was a team player representative and association representative for several seasons following. He was an active participant in the union's collective bargaining in 2002, 2006, and in negotiations regarding Major League Baseball's drug policy. In March 2010, Clark was hired to be MLBPA's Director of Player Relations. 
And it was reported in April of 2013 that uh, Clark was close to earning a degree in history and planned to potentially pursue a law degree. Following the death of Michael Weiner, uh, Clark was unanimously voted uh, executive director of Major League Baseball Players Association in December 2013. He became the first former Major League player to hold the position. Now, I may have uh, mispronounced Michael Weiner's name uh, because I believe it, it – I've heard it pronounced that way too, but uh, total, uh, I, I've been watching some Mad Men clips on YouTube recently, and I think that's also the name of the creator of, of Mad Men, and somebody on there called him Michael Weiner, and I was like, oh, maybe that's how it's pronounced. But anyway, um, so it, it sounds as if, uh, Rich, um, with Tony Clark specifically, that there was, there, that, that he, I don't know. It doesn't say specifically what degree he got from San Diego State University, but he did go to San Diego State University originally. Um, it seems, according to the way Wikipedia uh, forms it, that he really took an interest in the the players, uh, the 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 you know well-being of the player when he was a player himself. And also, I'll leave you with this. It's very interesting. On Baseball Reference, of course, it lists all the money he made over his 15 seasons, and it breaks it down by team. $22 million in total, uh, close to it, over 15 seasons. Detroit, he made $12 million. Arizona, $3.6 million. Boston, $5 million. San Diego, 900000 New York Yankees, 750000 Ironically, and I have no idea why it's not the only one listed, the Mets part is blank. Apparently, Rich, he did not get paid by the Mets. <laughs> you know that that's just um that's just life imitating comedy right there you know that that is really funny but um but anyway you know with regard to that everything we've been talking about the acrimony between the two sides and i think the public has had enough i mean you know again there there are a couple different ways to look at it i think if you're steve's mike's and my age you're just, you're just. Look, I've had enough of you guys going back and forth and bickering. You know, we lived through, although we were little kids at the time. You know, we lived through the 1972 uh, work stoppage uh, that slowed the season down a little bit. We lived through '94. Um, you know, and but in, even in between that, you know, you had in the late '80s, you had a, a, an issue going on. I forget. I think it was '88 where um, where they, they delayed spring training. Yeah, it, it's just it's just incessant, and I think for people of, of my age, it's like you know what, enough. We don't want to hear from you anymore. You have to be able to work this out. Go in a room, close the door, like Gary Cohen said. I'm not sure if you saw the interview with Gary Cohen just the other day. I think it was yesterday day before, where he was saying they have to stop talking to the press, go in there and and make make something happen, and and, and just stop with the acrimony. And for the younger people. You know, younger baseball fans who haven't been through all this nonsense over the years, they're probably looking at it like, "What? I don't. All right, I don't have time for this anymore. I'm out of here." And they just and they just go to a different sport. And like Steve said, when you have the NBA and NHL, which again I go back to my previous statement, I'd love for you guys to comment on why they haven't established dates. Um, I really wonder what's behind that because remember their seasons start up again in October and November, respectively, NHL and NBA. So if you're going to push this thing into August, you know, middle of August, late August or whatever it is, you're going to have no off season. You're just going to go get going again. And, and it seems strange to me they haven't put a date on the calendar. But anyway, um, it'll be very easy for people to say, 
you know, uh, okay, well, baseball, you know, you guys are, you guys are like a little weird that you can't, that you don't want to play and you'd rather not play and all this. And young people are just going to go. They're just going to go somewhere else and find their entertainment somewhere else. I, I do want to comment on one thing about the NFL that I saw yesterday. D. Maurice Smith, and yes, Mike, you're right, the NFL union is the weakest of the bunch by far. D. Maurice Smith refuted something that um, Goodell said. He said, you know, the commissioner is saying we're going to start on time and we're going to have fans and all this kind of thing. He's like, we as the players are not convinced. So he said, you know, he said, I would put the likelihood of a season, this is D. Maurice Smith, starting on time at about a 6 out of 10, um, which leaves a lot of room for interpretation. He was saying, you know, he wants to see, and the players want to see testing protocols. They want to see all the safety measures in place. So there's trepidation on the part of all the sports. But, again, the difference, you know, as everybody's been talking about, they're talking, they're trying to figure it out. You know, you hear things like, okay, we're going to get going, hang with us on a date, okay, for whatever that means. This is the only sport where what we have to listen to is this, is this rhetoric that is just, especially with the world burning behind us and in front of us, we don't want to listen to your bullshit. Just stop. You know, I mean, it's the only sport that airs its dirty laundry like that, like you know, the analogy that Steve used before about the old lady with the pillow leaning out the window. You know, it's the only sport that airs its dirty laundry publicly like that. And, and for a sport that I mentioned earlier, like in, uh, you know, like, in, like in the article, Verducci's article, where its popularity is clearly not what it was, it's, it's not smart. If you're a smart owner and you want to make money, it's all about the money. I lose this much, lose that much. I'm a businessman. I don't care about the game. Well, if the game suffers, you're going to make less money. So it doesn't benefit you to air your dirty laundry and turn people off. If you're a player and revenues start going down because people lose interest in the sport, you and the brethren that come after you are going to lose money. Nobody wins by doing this, okay? So and that's the part that's most frustrating. Instead of uh, uh, the soups of Brooklyn, it's, it's Twitter. Say that again, brother? I said, instead of the stoops of Brooklyn, it's Twitter. Airing number 30 laundry. Oh. Uh, oh. Uh, what can I say? What can I say? Uh, days are getting stranger and weird by the moment, so let's continue forward. I hear that. You know, Steve, you, you had so many different analogies there, uh, and, and that's really what, it, what it's become. You know, Twitter in many ways, like the, some stuff that we talked about regarding the way uh, ballplayers and, and the fans interacted a long time ago, and it was very kind of just much more personal, you know. Even though the union and Marvin Miller uh, were, were needed, and they were, you know, the owners were – taking advantage of it, it was, it was just a tale that's been told throughout this country, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of workers versus the, 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 the bosses. Um, but you know, it, it, it seemed to, they're, they're, they lived amongst you. They were part of the community, the players. Uh, and, uh, I, I think one of the benefits of Twitter was the, is the fact that, you know, just even the other night, Greg Jeffries responded to something that I was tagged in. 
You know, like, like you're able to have conversations with the players a lot easier than you did at some of these points uh, after Marvin Miller, like 1988 and 1994, like we were talking about, and why fans felt disconnected from players. But when you're talking about the casual fan and he's reading what Max Scherzer had to say about the, the owners opening their books, like, you know, that, that stuff is gold for you and I and, and all of us who, who are just so invested in this sport that we, we love all these little dramatic details in some fashion, even if we're, we're frustrated and fed up that they can't, that, that they're constantly at an impact. But, but it also just seems that's what, because they know they have those eyes on their words, they're airing the dirty laundry out more than they ever have. Even, even more than uh, what you hear about, you know, Roscoe McGowan and, and Dick Young and, and Frank Graham back in the day. One of the problems you have with, like, Max Scherzer putting on his statements is that he's a Scott Boris client. And Scott Boris, uh, as he does most times, has to stick his beak into the business of baseball. Now, all he does when he does this is, number one, when fans hear the name Scott Boris, they, they, they just start cursing because they, they feel he's the guy that, you know, they don't look, fans don't look at it as he's working for players, getting them the most money they can get. They look at him as a guy who's ruining the game. Second problem is he is undermining Tony Clark in the worst way. He is not the spokesperson for this players association. Tony Clark is their spokesperson. When he comes out and starts, you know, giving out his rhetoric and Trevor Bauer to his credit went on Twitter, Scott Boris and told the other guys who are their clients, why don't you guys be quiet and let the PA run this thing. You know, Scott Boris, Scott Boris for a guy who has so much money, he would, I mean, he could live three lifetimes and he couldn't spend the money he's made off commissions. He still has to have his face on TV. He still has to be in the paper. He still has to be a presence, you know, and, this is a problem. Guys like Scott Boris, when they get a little bit of power, they're dangerous. Like we said, we don't want to get political, but there's a guy in Washington kind of the same way. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> he has to say, let, the, let Tony Clark and his people in the PA take, go to the owners, go with Bob Manfred. He, he just looks like a guy who just should be there to get coffee and Danish for everybody. It has to be like the one owner where, like, you know, in the NFL, like Jerry Jones is the guy that will speak up or Robert Kraft will be the guy that speaks up. Or in the NBA, you'll have, uh, have, say, like James Dolan, even though people don't like him, but a prominent owner. Somebody to take the reins of this thing and just bring everybody together and just say, hey, listen, enough with, you know, let's put a gag order on both sides here. Enough with the talking, enough with the social media. Let us sit here, lock the door, and let's let's hammer something out. Because, we're, you know, like I said, even and to, to Richie's correct, where he says all these other sports have said we're coming back. They didn't tell you when. They said we're coming back. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they don't have a date set in stone. If you're if you're baseball, you need to sit down and say, listen, I mean, we. You're getting, I mean, here in New York, Governor Cuomo has told all these teams, you can open up your facilities. You guys can open them up. Figure out for yourselves how you want to do it. Bring, you know, a certain amount of players in at one time, then let them go and bring another certain. 
Figure out, you guys figure out your own way of doing things and get your own medical people in there. You can open your facilities. So we should be talking about the Mets going into, you know, at City Field, working out, getting their guys back here. But we're not because it's – and you don't even hear about the players and, and, and these owners talking about the health factor. It's just money. All we hear about is money. You know, I don't hear I don't hear anybody talking about who coaches or, or managers who have pre existing conditions who who if they get this virus it's worse for them than it is for most people. You're not hearing that. All we're hearing is how much money am I gonna get? How much are you gonna lose? How much is this? And if you're somebody who's like sitting around waiting for some stimulus check to come to pay your pay your rent or you know, you you you're working from home and you're glad that you got a job or you're a guy, or you're in that the restaurant business, like uh, Sean Clancy of Foley's, who has to close his doors because of this thing. Who was running one of the great New York sports bars of all time. I want to hear about guys file. You know, I want to hear billionaires fighting millionaires. I don't want to hear it. We, you guys, don't want to hear it. Baseball fans don't want to hear it. Mike, you know, he's right about the leadership on both sides, uh, and and going to the owners specifically uh, in terms of a faith that really get like, I can't even, the Wilpons are infamous. Um, you think about, I guess, what's his name? Ricketts uh, in Chicago. He's, he's not really all that vocal outside of the Cubs. Um, there's no Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban has transcended the fact that he, he's the Dallas Mavericks uh, uh, owner. And the, it, it is. It, you, don't, you don't even think about it like that. Like I, 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 it doesn't come up in my head all that often, but Stephen's absolutely right. There is no face of MLB ownership. The face of ownership has definitely changed uh, within our lifetime, Rich, Stephen, and, and even you, Sam, uh, somewhat younger than, than the other one of us. Uh, you know, we remember, of course, George Steinbrenner, but we remember Marge Schott, and we remember uh, O'Malley when they still own the Dodgers, and we remember a lot of the old school owners. And they had their own issues, you know, with the Players Union, but today's ownership groups, and I think that's the key word, ownership groups, uh, you know, some of them are just a hodgepodge of, you know, guys with money or people with money, and they're putting it together, and they have one managing partner, the front person. Uh, look at Miami. You know, uh, Judah's a very minority owner in that in that operation. He's the front guy. That's why he's there. Uh, but I'm sure they have a multitude of owners who are all crapping their pants right now and, and are, in fact, losing money on an individual basis because where it once was, you know, where you had rich guys who invested in baseball as a hobby, uh, some of these new wave owners, you know, are actually investing in this uh, endeavor to actually turn a buck. I can't say that for everybody within the respective ownership groups, but that's what's going on for uh, a lot of clubs these days. Uh, you know, it, it, it it's ponderous to me that Boston, they can't stand John Henry. You know, uh, and maybe as much as we might hate the Wolfons here, that's an odd relationship going up in Boston. 
but there are none of those old school mentalities that would dominate a group of owners today like whereas one time the O'Malley's weight you know held sway and and George Steinbrenner held sway uh there is nobody uh existing today within the ownership group who can just walk into the room and hold sway uh so yeah that's that's lacking in a in a big 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 way uh and, and above all else you know let's define ownership here they want to reap all the benefits and profits as capitalists do, completely unwilling uh, to play the role of capitalists when it comes to risk and loss. And, and that's where I stand. You know, so a lot of crybabies in that ownership group. And again, we're, 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 we're disputing a, a matter of trust and principle. It's just unfortunate that it involves so much money, it, it just disgusts us when the topic comes up. Yeah, uh, and I think this is a good segue to our, our next part uh, regarding news that J-Rod is trying to put an investment team together to buy the Mets. And, and, but, but before we do, uh, and, and frame that in what we've just talked about regarding the owners, uh, we do have a phone call from an 860 area code. Uh, hello, you are here on a Metsian podcast. Hi, this is Bill Terry. I'm calling to see if Brooklyn is still in the league. Norm, normally, uh, uh, they 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 were, uh, but but some, you know, owner uh, whisked them away to a, a far off land called Lala. You can't trust anybody these days. No, you can't, Bill. I, I have to say. So so who, uh, in in what form of of. Uh, of, of of matter of substance, are you coming to us uh, today, Spirit of Bill Terry? Uh, hi guys, this is the Big Red Rock is calling. Uh, hasn't been a while hi. since I called. Just wanted to say hello and let you know that somebody is listening live and uh, that we appreciate what you're doing. Well, we appreciate you as well, Big Red. Uh, if, if before I let you go. Before I let you go, if you can, uh, <laughs> hello out there. Um, what? Give us your thoughts on everything we're talking about. Uh, we appreciate that you've been listening live, so you you must have something to say about everything we have said. Well, I think you guys are right. This goes back to uh, this goes back to Faye Vincent getting kicked out. Uh, that baseball no longer has an objective voice as a commissioner. Uh, that the commissioner is a pawn of the owners. Uh, that's very much true. And uh, this is also uh, expansion coming back to bite ownership and baseball in uh, the posterior. Um, for a long time, expansion for baseball has been heroin because these guys got tens of millions of dollars at a time for uh, bringing people into the club. But when you do that, the club changes. So all of a sudden, you know, uh, baseball becomes uh, transmogrified into uh, small market mentalities. And you can include the Wilpons in that, even though they're not in the small market. And um, when baseball is being steered in so many ways by the Chicago White Sox, uh, 
you know, it's it's not the best interest of baseball. And I'm sorry to say that nobody out there is worried about the best interests of baseball. And uh, everybody is forgetting what baseball means to this country. Um, going back to World War II, Franklin Roosevelt said that baseball should keep being played because it was good for the American people. Um, you know, the power that this sport has to unify people and to uh, distract people from the terrible things that go on in life is being completely ignored. And, um, you know, I could think of several stronger words than ignored, but uh, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Uh, that's pretty much it. This is, uh, you know, there's nothing new here. Uh, remember what uh, Branch Rickey said to Ralph Connor, son? We finished last with you, and we can finish last without you. Um, you know, the, I, I think the owners see this as a great opportunity to break uh, one of the strongest unions in the country, and uh, we'll have to see what happens. But uh, I, I have been happy watching the 69 World Series on TV, I have to tell you that. So <laughs> that's what I have to say. Yeah. Well, well, we, we'd uh, love for you to stick around if you are willing to join us. Sure, if you want, I'll, I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, so and you, oh, man, you bring up so many, so many points too. And um, uh, you know, Rich, I'm I'm going to go to you next on this because I'm I'm remembering what I wanted to say earlier to you about about all of this. It it's it's remarkable how much we took for granted this game, and take for granted the faith we have every day that everything's going to be normal. Uh, you know, when you're sitting up there as much as you're loving and you know, not only, you know, that something like, like, like baseball could easily, it, it has to, to survive. It needs money and it, it's a private business. And, it, it, uh, you know, we've taken for granted that it could ever be the stronghold that it's always been in, in modern America. And I, I, you know, other than other than the fact that, you know, when you're up there, you're, you you sometimes you think about life, you think about death, and and you watch that beautiful sport. But now, I, I mean, for one, you're I, I think I know I'm going to have even more of an appreciation when I'm sitting up there, or even just watching it on television. Number one, but number two. And what we were saying about the powers that be need to understand this in terms of not, like like they make their money they don't lose more money by not playing the games, but they could lose a lot <laughs> over time um, i mean it's just it, it it's hard to put into words how much we've taken it for granted and and, and it's it's i'm after you. Well, no, that is true. I mean, it's like anything else. Think about everything else we're taking for granted in the, in the current world. You know, we've all seen um, those, those statements out there in some form or another that says, you know, when this uh, pandemic is over, I'm never going to take for granted, you know, hugging a loved one, going to a restaurant and eating inside, um, going to the gym in the morning. All these things that we are not able to do that have been just part of our lives we appreciate them now that they're not here. And, and, you know, and I go back to what I'm saying is that we here on this call and, and, and a fair amount of other people out there are 
screaming for baseball to come back. We're, the, the passion you hear us, and the reason we're doing this, and the passion you hear in our voices is because we miss it. It's because, you know, yeah, maybe we took it for granted, maybe not, but, but we really miss that it's not here. We've noticed. My concern as a baseball fan is that the people who think like us and the people who are very concerned that there isn't baseball and are saying, oh, geez, I shouldn't take it for granted, man, I, I, really, I really, really miss it, that number of people, that base is eroding. No question. That is indisputable. And my concern is if this thing crashes and burns in the next, you know, we'll call it 10 days, and there's no season, we know right away that it's going to be, whether they say it's about the availability of testing and all that, it's going to be perceived as being a money issue. And it's going to turn more people off. And then what's going to happen? I mean, I'm concerned about the future of the game. And, and, you know, a lot of people have said it. You know, Howie Rose said it, and and it was written by another – I saw another article where they said that this is the the most critical time in the history of this sport is what happens in the next 10 days. And I I read that in – I forget where I read that. Maybe it was the Post or maybe it was SI where they said this is the most critical time. I think it was the Verducci article. Yeah, it's the Verducci article. Where, you know, if you're you're not going to play – you better be really, really careful about how you message that. And then you have to look at the fact that these other three sports may play. And then everybody's going to say, hmm, wasn't about that testing now, was it? Because now you have sports where people are literally on top of each other the entire game, and they found a way. So the public is going to say, that was about money, and that was about you know all these things we've been talking about. People who don't love the game and all, and, and Every time this happens, and again, 72, I think it was 89, 72, 89, 94, every time something like this happens, the game takes a major body blow. It's been able to come back each time. You know, we all know about Sosa McGuire. But when is that going to stop? At what point are you going to take that body blow and you're going to go down on the canvas and, and the referee is going to do the 10 count and it's a TKO for the other guy? I mean, and that's going to happen, and that's my concern. Yeah, exactly. Uh, going back to you, Stephen, um, you know, I know I wanted to at some point uh, cover J-Rod, but let's just take it from there, wherever you want to go. Well, <clears throat> you got to think the Wilpons, as, as usual, missed a great opportunity to, to cash out and be on their way when, when uh, Steve Cohen wanted to buy the team. And I mean, for whatever reason, they want to hang on to SNY. That SNY must make a ton of money. I guess those infomercials they run all day <laughs> must be a cash cow because the programming is dismal. I mean, it's uh, it's awful. It, it, it really is. I mean, if the, the the best show to me, and I, I watch for the Mets, but to me, the best show that they have on there is when the Jets Jet season, their pre and post game show with Ray Lucas. That's the best show they have. Because their baseball coverage, other than Gary Keith and Ron, it leaves a lot to be desired. But they they, they want to hold they want to hold on to that network, and they don't want to include that in the sale. But you got to you. I figure it. There's so much pressure on Fred and Jeff coming from Saul, especially Saul. Never wanted anything to do with this baseball team. He's making his money with Sterling Equities and and the real estate. That's all he's worried about. And he looks at the, at owning the Mets, especially 
post Madoff as, you know, something they don't need. And I think the rest of the Wilpon Katz family look at it like the same way how uh, the O'Malley's looked at the Dodgers. They're worried about what happens when Fred's gone. And where does all, you know, if they have to cash in on this team after that, do they lose money in estate tax? Do they lose any kind of, the taxes are probably going to kill them. And I think Saul is looking at that. Plus, you know, the only reason they're keeping it is because Jeff needs a job. I don't know what else this guy can do. I, I mean, I don't know what, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I mean, if he wants to take a civil service test, I think he's a little old now to get on the post office or something. But he he doesn't seem capable of, of really running anything. And I think the rest of the family looks at this and saying, listen, we could cash this thing out at like, you know, $2 billion and, and just split it between the whole family. And that's more than generational wealth right there. I mean, you're setting up the Will Ponds and Cat family for the rest of, for the rest of time. And I, I would love to like know the in, the infighting that goes on in those families. And the thing is too, I, I mean, nobody likes these people. I mean, it, it's sad because I don't think they're bad people. They're bad owners. I just, I don't, I just don't think, I don't think I've met Jeff Wilpon. It's, there's nothing there. I swear to God, it's, there's nothing. It's, I don't, I talked, I, I, I met him when we used to have the, the blogger nights. And one night they, they let him come and sit and have dinner with us because I guess they were tired of all the negative stuff that, especially what I was writing. I, I had a few times when I was asked, you know, if I could just down a little bit. And I said, well, speak to my editor. I said, well, who's your editor? Oh, you're speaking to him. <laughs> you want to speak to the publisher too? Well, it's the same guy, you know? Yeah, right. I said, I, yeah, I said, and I think that's what I kind of annoyed them with, why they were annoyed a lot with me is because they, uh, you know, what are they going to do with me? You know, I'm just a guy, I'm just a guy with a computer. Uh, you know, I had no boss, but, you know, you would talk to him and the guy had like no concept of what was going on. And then, I don't know if you ever saw what Paul LaDuca had put out a tweet about Jeff. LaDuca had a, uh, he wore Oakley sunglasses when he played, and he had, a, he had a deal with Oakley. Oakley would send him a whole bunch of glasses and everything. And one day he's getting ready, you know, they, they're coming out from batting practice, and they're going to get ready to, to, you know, for a game. And Jeff walks by LaDuca's locker and sees these pair of Oakley sitting there, and he picks him up, puts him on, and keeps walking. And LaDuca goes, oh, where are you going? He says, ah, come on, you got plenty of them. He goes, no, those are my game ones. If you want a pair, I can get you a pair. And Jeff goes, but I like these. And he goes, you don't understand. I need these for the game. We're playing it's a day game. It's, I need these. And, and Jeff just couldn't understand it. And like LaDuca had said, he goes, it took everything he had. He just punched this guy in the head because he just couldn't understand what he was talking about. And I mean, this is what you get with this ownership. They they have no clue. Remember when City Field first opened? There was no there was nothing mess about it. It was it was just Ebbets Field redone. The front is all Ebbets Field, because Fred loves the Dodgers, and it, it, there was nothing there was nothing mess about it. It was if you remember the, like when you first went in there, it was mostly black and gray steel and metal and yeah. There was no blue. All there was no blue and orange. Anyway. All photos. 
Yeah. They didn't even have a Hall of Fame. We've never had a statue. We've been hearing about the Siva statue for, what, two years now? I mean, you know, and then, and this then is not Moses. Yeah, this is not Moses with the ten, making the Ten Commandments, you know, on the top. Like, come on, you've got to find a guy who can put a bronze sculpture out of, of, of Tom Siva. And why just Tom Siva? Why not one of Gil Hodges? Why not one of, of Joan Payson? If it wasn't for her, we Everybody. wouldn't have this team. Yeah, I Everybody. mean, they, they, they have a problem celebrating the history of the franchise. You know, they think it's the, the, the franchise started the day they, they took over from Nelson Doubleday. There's a reason why when, when, when Nelson Doubleday sold off his end to them and they put Jeff Wolfon in charge and, and Nelson Doubleday said, well, guys, that's it. You're done. It's over. It's this guy. I mean, he knew him from a kid. This guy can't. This guy's going to run into the ground. And you would think you have a National League baseball team in New York City. You should. How how do you how could you lose money? How can you lose money with a team that you own the television station, that you own the park, you own the team? It's New York City. You, all you got to do is open the gates and people are coming in. It, it, it's just it's it's you know it's a short thing, and then they come out and say that they're losing money. But as we said, as I said before when we started, transparency and trust we that. If we fans don't have that with this ownership, they could tell you they lost a hundred million dollars. We don't believe them because they won't show it to you. It's a it's a private company. And they're not going to show it to you. But I mean, this is this is the problem. You know, you would think of teams like you would think like Hal, uh, Hal Steinbrenner, Jeff Wilpon, John Henry, whichever corporate guy is running the Dodgers, was Andrew Freeman running the Dodgers, the Cubs, Ricketts. Reinsdorf. These are the big teams. These are the big city teams. They should be the ones leading this charge. They should be saying, all right, listen, everybody, sit down. Let's go. Let's get on a Zoom conference, and let's bang this thing right out. But uh, sadly, it's not happening. we got to hope that, as usually happens with these baseball negotiations, it goes to the the 11th hour, and then finally something happens like at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they tell you, okay, we're coming back. We made an agreement. And hopefully that's what we're going to hear at about, uh, you know, 4.59 a.m. today. Uh, I'm going to go to you, Mike, with this one. So going, segueing from the Wilpons to any potential other one, uh, oh, say, maybe J-Rod, uh, which is funny to me that it's it, J-Rod just is like two abbreviations combined into another one. Um so, you know, there's a lot of opinions out there about what a hypothetical J-Rod ownership group would look like and how they would do. Now, is, is, it, uh, is it fair to automatically say just because of who they've been that this is how the kind of circus they would be, quote-unquote, uh, running the team? Would it really just be going from – uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, the Big Apple Circus, or you know, I, uh, should should people, for one, I think recognize how smart Alex is from a baseball perspective, um, and I have always appreciated his passion. I'm not saying that it's my my favorite thing, but you know, I automatically think it would definitely be better than the Wilpons. Of course, it could not be, um, but what do you think? Where are you on that? <clears throat> Of course, something's something's got to give. 
you know, obviously these will ponds are not working out. We've known this for a long time. So, yeah, something's got to change. And if it happens to be, again, we're going back to these uh, these ownership groups. Of course, A-Rod and Jayla would just be, you know, the front couple, so to say, uh, of a much larger group of investors. Sure, they would be savvy enough to be able to negotiate New York City, media, etc. But, as, you know, for as much as I, I'd like to make light of the situation or even make fun of the situation, in all fairness, I think you would have to point to the Magic Johnson business and ownership model. I think they would lean more that way, more professional. I think insofar as business is concerned, they really know what they're doing. Uh, they really do behind the scenes. Probably incredible is is not an exaggeration. You know, so that's it's a tricky thing because a lot of people, especially Met fans, A Rod being a former Yankee, and the way those failed negotiations went between A Rod and Steve Phillips many moons ago, there's a lot of emotion that could be involved there that would probably cloud the situation. But as owners. Uh, I'll reiterate, I would point to the Magic Johnson ownership model uh, that seems to be working out very well for him and his group. And um, Big, can can I call you Big or or Mr. Ruckus? What makes you happy, Sam, makes you happy. (laughs) Well, all right, well, listen, Big. Uh, first of all, it's interesting because, you know, Magic Johnson has been doing a great job with that ownership group, uh, even though they hadn't been able to win a World Series yet. Um, but at the same time, he still hasn't been, you know, front and center uh, when it comes to this ownership group and what we talked about regarding, you know, uh, uh, like somebody leading this charge. Um, so, you know, you're, you started uh, the conversation in some point uh, this week regarding J-Rod. Uh, so where do you fall on this? And I, 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 I think it's really interesting what Mike brings up re- in regards to just their individual markets that they've created for themselves, uh, both J-Lo and A-Rod. Uh, from a business perspective, you, you don't even it, – it's something that doesn't even come across our head, but Mike just brought it up. I, liked, I appreciate that. Well, um, here's my thought on this. They are both – entrepreneurs. Um, A-Rod Alex has worked in a team setting. I don't think J-Lo ever has, and I'm not sure that she ever will. Uh, between the two of them, there there is a significant difference between being an artist and, and being an entrepreneur and being a manager. So it would be very interesting to me to see um, what exactly they would do with the team, what their plans might be. And, of course, they will never tell us. Um, I have no idea what J-Lo will do with the Mets. I shudder to think what she might do with the uniforms. But um, I'm I'm not sure that they have – I'm not sure that they have the the disposition for this. I could be very wrong. Um, I just don't have enough information to know what, you know, we're, we're all sitting in the same boat. We all recognize that um, the Wilpons have been a pox upon us. Uh, and particularly Jeff, because 
nobody likes him. Uh, his own cousins will not work with him, and his own brother will not work with him. Um, you know, and, and there are innumerable stories that you can go on the Internet and, and, and find out about that. Uh, so we're in, a, we're in between a rock and a hard place. Uh, we all know that uh, we're, we, as, as the fans, are in, are in mortal peril as long as this group of people are the owners of the team we love. But on the other hand, does that mean that anybody is better? I don't know. Um, I just, I, you know, from what I understand of J-Lo, she's uh, uh, an irascible sort. And again, that's only what I know from the newspapers. But, uh, you know, I, I'm going to punt on this one. It took me a long time. I gave up my four downs. But I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Rich, uh, the downs are yours. Uh, is this the type of blank canvas you would want? Um, you know, it, when you're looking at the the way that their careers have gone, this really would be the next step. Well, I look at it from a different angle. I get what Red was saying, you know, that this, this is one guy who was a player and, you know, had his issues with that. And and then also someone who's an entertainer. Understood. Uh, and I think that is that is a yellow flag of caution. However, I, I will be very brief on this one. I ask you this question. Right now, Jeff Wilpon is making a lot of baseball decisions. We know that. We've heard it from Pedro. We've heard it from everybody that Jeff Wilpon, you know, makes a lot of the baseball decisions. Would you rather have... Jeff Wilpon making those decisions or A-Rod. I'll leave it at that. Steven, coming back around to you. Oh, boy. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing with, with A-Rod is I've I, I seen him on, on Shark Tank, and he seems to have a pretty good grasp on business. And I know that he's gone back to – he had gone back to, to school – and was taking business classes, and he, he he does seem when he's on when I've seen him a few times on Shark Tank, he does seem to handle himself pretty good about talking to these entrepreneurs about you know their margins and stuff like that. And I, I think the, the biggest thing is they're only, they would be like they a, a minority owner, and that I don't they don't have the capital really to put up for the majority of it. It seems that the, there's a group from Chase Manhattan, from J.P. Morgan Chase, that they would be the ones who would be the big money people putting this up, and they would probably be the majority of the ownership. The question is, like, you can own, whoever owns the team, it's who do they put in charge of running the team? I mean, we came from in from M. Donald Grant when when the, the Mets, that was like rock bottom after the SEVA deal from 77 to 79 to where Doubleday and Wilpon bought the team. And then they brought in Frank Cashin, who built the great Baltimore Orioles teams. And Cashin also built up the farm system that gave us Dwight Gooden and Darrell Strawberry, to, you know, amongst other players, but those two big ones that came and then ended up getting a Gary, getting adding parts of Gary Carter, Keith Hernandez, and and you know trading, making trades, getting Ron Darling here, you know, putting together 
a championship team. If they, if you have someone who buys into the team, but hires, you know, a say a president of baseball operations who's actually a baseball man, not a uh, an agent posing as a baseball guy, as we have now with the Van Wagen, who, you know, I think he's a little he's over his head as a GM. I don't think, I think you know he might have been a really good agent, but. As a baseball guy, he's not really shown too much of anything here. And you have the owner, the, the CEO, and Jeff Wilpon, who he's going to call all the shots. And, you know, I, I don't know how much time we have, but I could give you a story about me with him about talking about uh, making deals for players. He has no clue what he's, he's you know, Scott Bar- whatever Scott Boris tell- was telling him, he listens to him. When Boris tells him to do something, that's what he was following orders from Scott Boris on a lot of deals. And I, you know, the stuff he was telling me, I was just like shaking my head. Like, I can't believe this guy is running this team. The key is whoever is the owner, who are they going to put in charge to run the baseball operations to, to get a, you know, to, to run the, get the major league side, the minor league side, the player development side, the analytics side, you need somebody who is, you know, can get these, all these different divisions in line to build a championship team. So if it's, you know, and if A-Rod and, and, J, and, and, and J-Lo want to, you know, stand outside to shake hands and sign autographs for everybody, yeah, it's fine. But as long as you put somebody in charge of the baseball operations who is a baseball person, that's what you need to do. Yeah, and that's really what it uh, all comes down to uh, when all of this is said and done. Uh, before we move on to our our historical topic, I mean, obviously, we could really just go all night with this, but we, we can't go all night. Uh, but let's go around the horn and see what everybody would like to, to uh, make sure that we cover before we, uh, we go a little bit back in time, although not really uh, uh, too much to go on regarding number 56. But, uh, uh, Rich, I'll start with you. Anything that you're thinking about? Well, the only thing I would ask is, um, just for comment, I wonder at what point they put a fork in this season. Like, in other words, and I know they might pull out a deal, and I do think they will. There's just too much to lose. But um, what do you think the real deadline is? I'll just leave it at that. I I think it has to be – June 10th, because you have to give guys a week to show up for you know to start getting ready. You have to give them two to three weeks. Ron Darling said he thought two, um, so let's say two to three. And then if you want to have a good representation of a baseball season, you have to have at least 81 games. And to do that, and to end it on October 1st, you have to start it July 1st. So just curious on on what people think. And so what what do you think the drop dead date is? And gun to your head, you know, figuratively, um, do you think they will or will not? have a season. I say June 10th is the deadline, and I say yes, that they will. I say they will. I'll go to Mike first. What do I got here? I got two things on my notes. <laughs> uh, I just want to very quickly jump on something that Stephen said. I don't care who the owner is. It turns out to be A-Rod and J-Lo, so be it. But I, I trust them to be background figures. I expect them to play this legit and hire a team president, GM, field manager, and keep it, you know, straight and narrow. I don't expect them, either one of them, to be shot callers. And as he says, if they want to hang out and sign autographs out the, outside the stadium, that's fine. 
just play this legit. Make sure you put the right people in the right place. That, and I would suggest to people, we talked about a lot of labor strife and the history of it. This is the 130th anniversary. Yes, I said 130th anniversary of something called the Players League. For those of you listening, go back, do some homework, check it out, and you'll understand why what's going on today is nothing new. That is true. Google Players League. Um, I will spin it around to Big. Hi, folks. Um, I think they have to play because if, if they don't play, you know, no more golden eggs. I don't know if they're smart enough to understand that, but that's that's the honest truth. Um, I'll I'll end with something um, rhetorical. Uh, one of the greatest pieces of 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 film in the last couple of decades has been um, James Earl Jones' speech in the cornfield about what baseball means to this country. And it is very true, but nobody with his hand on the wheel and his foot on the gas is willing to acknowledge that, which is frightening. That's all. Well said. Well said. Uh, Stephen? I think there will be a season. I think I think it's going to be one of those, the 11th hour deals where they both come to come to a some kind of a conclusion. I think the owners will get their, their sliding scale, but then I think that there'll be givebacks in, um, for next year and when the next collective bargaining uh, comes up. I think they'll end up that you're going to start, you'll see, you know, you'll start seeing the 26 player. We have 26 players that are supposed to be this year. I think we're going to see the, the universal DH is going to be here. I, I hate the DH, but I mean it's been around for over 50 years, so it's going to be in the National League. It helps the Mets because we have enough guys that you know could be DHs that'll be productive. And I think that they'll end up playing the 80, 80. And I think you're going to see a team, uh, one of the teams that's going to come out of of after these 80 games that no one ever thought could win a World Series and is going to win the World Series. I don't think that, an 80 game season. I don't think bodes well for teams that of the top echelon teams, Yankees and Dodgers like that. I think that's going to hurt them because a team, any team can, you know, in 80 games, it's, it's just, now it's a sprint. We always said the 162 games was the marathon. This is going to be a sprint. And I think the 80 game schedule helps the Mets. So I, I, I see that's another reason why I want this to happen. Cause I think, I think the Mets could really make a lot of noise in an 80 game season. And, and it's both like, uh, exciting and depressing to say that just just because we know what we've seen the Mets do in like a small period of time, uh, and that that's usually when you know they light a fire under their ass. Um, it, I'll, I'll before we uh, go to the historical part, I'll, I'll leave this question to all of you, and I'll start with you, Mike. Um, how do you? I mean, the noise that has to be made is going to be made against a completely different set of opponents. How do you think that's going to factor for all the ball teams out there? Did you say the noise? 
No, I, I the the, the I'm, I'm sorry, the, I'm just having a hard I'm just having a hard time hearing you. That's why. Okay. Um. Uh. Can everybody else hear me? Yes. Yeah. Sounds good here. Yeah, we're okay. Okay. Great. So no, no. I was just saying that that the opponents that they're going to have to uh, face to make noise for the Mets to make noise uh, is going to be a whole different set of of opponents because of the realignment for the division. So how do you think that's going to factor in to the, the sprints that we're, we could possibly be seeing soon? Well, you know, it is what it is. You play. You play the games. Everyone's going to be on equal footing. Everyone's going to pretty much play the same schedule, same opponent, same amount of times. So, you know, the old adage, if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. Whomever that may be, whoever emerges from this, is going to be a champion. I won't look back and, and you know, decide one day, oh, let's put an asterisk on that. Now, uh, it, it is what it is. Uh, and, and this is just that type of year, that type of season, that type of situation and conditions. So it is different. We have to think of it differently. And uh, may the better team win. I know we're going to be playing the Yankees and the Red Sox and, you know, a lot of the teams within our proximity but it is what it is. If anything, embrace it, enjoy it. We may not ever see it again. So have fun with it. And, again, may the better team win. Rich, I guess that's really the, the only way to look at it. What do you think? I'm with Mike. I, I think it doesn't matter, you know, if they decide to do divisions geographically to minimize travel, everybody will understand why. It's not a, it's not a question to any reasonable person as to why you would do that. So everybody's on equal footing, as Mike said. You, you, you play. Everybody has, you know, let's say it's July 1st. On July 1st, the curtain goes up. Everybody has the same chance to win. Everybody's playing an 81 or whatever number season. The championship will not be stained, I don't think, for whoever does win it. Um, someone made the point, I uh, forget who it was, on, on our, I think our last week's podcast that said there's no asterisk near the 1981. Uh, World Series winner, the Dodgers, because that was a strike-interrupted season. There's no asterisk there. Nobody talks about that. It's just Dodgers won the World Series in 81. Okay, great. And eventually, this will just be another World Series victory for whoever does win. So it's more important to get the game back on the field than to worry about who's in what division and why does it look different and what about the DH. It's more important to get everybody going again, playing by the same set of rules, and, and let's have a season. Big, I will go to you and frame it this way, though. Uh, do you think they will – it could be, like, such such a raucous success uh, that when we see baseball back in a, a regular mode, uh, it could be also irregular in that they've expanded. There's two more teams, maybe obviously not within 2021, but you get my drift. They'll expand and make divisions regional. Do you think this could possibly create – a drastic difference in the way this. Oh yeah, um, you know, nothing is going to be the same. I, I think ownership is looking at making Major League Baseball like the NFL. Uh, I mean, they've already gone to interleague play, but I think they're gonna. Um, I think they're gonna be trying to do uh, all sorts of wild experiments, and uh, you know, once once the foot is in the door. There's no stopping it. Um, so we'll have to see. But, you know, uh, even weird baseball is better than no baseball at all. 
So, you know, we'll, well, we'll, we'll just have to see. But uh, I think once we start playing, it's going to be like after 9-11. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Steven, uh, you know, uh, same question um, and, and everything else we've talked about. Just expand on. I need to. I need some baseball because I'm not a TV watcher. I can't. I don't watch sitcoms or cop shows or any of this other crap that's on television. So it's, you know, I you know you have your ritual. You know, when I, I go to work in the morning, and I get to work. I read all the box scores while I'm on the ferry. Get my get my paper. I'm reading the box scores. See what's going on. You get to work. When you get to lunchtime, you start thinking, oh, okay, who are we playing? Oh, we're playing, playing the Phillies tonight. All right, who's pitching? Oh, Arietta. Arietta against, oh, Arietta against the, the Grump. Got to get home. I got to get, I got to, you know, I got to be, got to be in my, in, on my couch by uh, 710. I got to see this game. And that's how you, that's how I usually plan my day during the baseball season. And especially then if it's a weekend. So should we go, I mean, I'm going to go out to that Saturday night game or that Sunday game. I've been doing, I mean, been doing this since I'm six years old, so this this is something now. Like you know, I'm working from home, so I don't have to travel anymore. And but come seven ten, uh, you know, I'm not watching Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune. I'm telling you that. I need something, so uh, I just you know, as soon as they come back and we can, because you know that's the beauty of baseball. It's every day. It's every day. I mean, think about it. How many times, you know, during baseball season and we're like, oh, there's no Met game tonight. What am I going to do? Well, you know, Wednesday night. Oh, they're, they're traveling? Okay, they're going to the West Coast. All right, let me get some sleep tonight because now it's, they're going to be in San Francisco. They're going to be in L.A. They're going to be in San Diego. I'm going to have to stay up for these games. And you don't have that now. And, you know, it's been, like I say, it's been a habit my whole life. I know – I'm pretty sure you guys feel the same way. It's been a habit with you guys as well. And it's something that we, we want back, you know, and however we get it, we, we want it. But I also think that this is the time, if they're going to do any kind of experimenting with the game, now's the time to do it. And I think that when, because they, if we, when they do, if they do come back and hopefully they will come back, you know, the, you know, the, the American League East and the, and the National League East are going to, you know, a schedule of, the, of just those teams and the, the Centrals and the West as well. And I think if that really works out the way they think it'll work out, I think you're going to see the end of National League and American League. I think you're going to see, like, a, as, as Big Red said, like you're going to have like an NFL type thing. You're going to have a National Conference and American Conference. And then I think you're going to end up seeing Mets, Yankees, and like Mets, Yankees, Red Sox, and Phillies in one division. And I mean, for guys, are, you know, my age, I'm, I might be the oldest guy here. So I, I'm not used to, you know, all that change and everything like that. But uh, if it grows the game, if it makes the game as popular, if it makes the game better, I'm all for it. Oh, man, you touched on so much there. Uh, it's, Rich, it's like clockwork. You know, you, you work your, your day around it because there is no other sport like it. And what, what is amazing, too, and I think about this all the time, and, you know, you relive those highs, and you only get to do that for less than, what, 18 hours or whatever, it, you know, the turnaround is, and sometimes not even that. It's, it, you know, like, it's, it's remarkable. No, it is. It's funny. You know, I went to a, a deck gathering yesterday. I think that's I mentioned that before. Where go to somebody's deck, everybody's six 
sit six feet apart at minimum, but at least you're with people, you know, and you just can talk and that kind of thing. And the person's house, another Mets fan, said, I bought this Bluetooth speaker so when I'm working in the yard, I could listen to the games. You know, I could just <laughs> – it's like, okay, that's the kind of stuff you do. You know, it, it, it's – baseball, like any other sport, it, it, it's a part of your life. Like Steve just said, you weave it into your day because it's every day. And um, – and, and people make their life decisions around it. it. It impacts the way you live six or seven months out of the year. And, um, and yeah, I think every one of us on this call right now, on, on this podcast, has been impacted by this. There's a change to our routine. We would not be doing this right now if we didn't love the game so much, and, and, and it was a big part of our lives. So, it, yeah, life has changed. Life's changed everywhere, but, but in this one instance, it, it's, it's noticeable. Mike, let me set the New York scene for you. It's uh, 42nd Street and Dyer Avenue this morning. I'm delivering uh, uh, coffee. And there's a, two doormen standing outside one of these uh, high, tall high-rises. And there's uh, this other guy in plain clothes uh, wearing a Mets hat. And as I'm passing them, I'm not really acknowledging that I didn't say anything about the Mets, you know. And, of course, I'm thinking about it. Uh, but somebody else was passing them, and the guy goes, and he's not wearing any affiliation of anything, uh, and he goes, gentlemen, good morning, and a Mets fan. <laughs> and I was like, he's probably a Yankee fan. Uh, I think it was more like, good morning, gentlemen, and the Mets fan. It's saying that the Mets, the Mets fan is not necessarily exactly a gentleman, but a little fun little slight between – so, you know, it, it, it's remarkable. You know, we also take for granted the fact that there can be that camaraderie. Sometimes we, we, we josh each other a little too much. And, and, and you know, I've, I, in my research, there has been moments of violence within New York City baseball rivalry. But it, it was uh, it, it, it just, got, you know, got me right to the heart to see that little ribbing, even if it was of my team. Sam, there's an eerie silence in the city with regards to baseball chatter in the five boroughs, that kind of stuff between Mets fans and Yankee fans or old Dodger and Giant and Yankee fans or, you know, whichever mix. That was the anthem of the city for a long time, for over 100 years. It was was the rhythm on the streets, along with every other noise, clash, horn, screech, dog barking, and every other imaginable sound out there that, you know, the great symphony of the boroughs, and that was very much a part of it. Uh, And forever baseball talk in New York City is the anthem of the boroughs. Strongly believe that. Well said. And I'll I'll lean it back over uh, to, to, uh, excuse me, Biggs. Um, to round us out of our, our this segment, you know, New York City, uh, and you're you're a Cornell guy. Uh, if, if you don't mind, uh, if you could go into, you know, your New York roots, your Mets roots, as well as how you got up to uh, to Cornell. Oh boy, uh, you're asking a lot. Uh, but uh, born in Queens, grew up on Staten Island. Um, Took the ferry into the big city to work. Uh, 
took all my uh, SAT tests and were going back several decades now, so I don't remember. And, uh, you know, I threw out the applications to see where I would get in, and bingo, um, I got into Cornell. So not being stupid, I went, you know. Um, and it was uh, it was a great education. Uh, you know, I was 200 – I'll tell you something. Uh, as I was driving up the first time with my family – I remember listening to Bob Murphy on the radio and, and eventually around Binghamton losing the signal. Uh, so that that's an interesting memory. Um, then uh, came back, uh, got my MBA at St. John's and uh, bounced around doing this and that. Um, never gave up the Mets. And uh, I remember the 86 parade because I was on the corner of Rector and uh, Broadway, uh, standing on top of a uh, a light pole, watching. Uh, and uh, boy, uh, you know, I remember that very, like it was yesterday. And uh, uh, depending on the job, I moved uh, to different places. I was in uh, Westchester for a little while. I was in Stamford, Connecticut, and uh, for about seven years. And I moved up to Litchfield County about twenty something years ago. So, but always, uh, you know, I, going back to the uh, Shea and the World's Fair. So, you know, that's uh, that's how long I've been around. I can remember uh, being with my grandpa and his friends and them saying, my God, this kid, Seaver, he is the reincarnation of Christy Matthewson. So, you know, I, I go back that far. And here I am. And here you are. And you know what? He may have well been. Um, <laughs> that's a, a great connection, and I appreciate you helping to round out this segment of a Metzian podcast. Uh, I thank you all for, you, you know, just that baseball and Mets connection that we're able to come together during this, uh, this rough time. And we're going to do a little trip down memory lane now uh, with number 56 in the uniform. And there's a lot of names on here that uh, you guys are going to be able to uh, speak better to. Uh, and I think, you know, I, uh, for, for me, uh, when I see Louis Ayala's name, uh, I immediately think he was like the reason 2008, one of the reasons other than just, you know, other players that a better caliber being on the injured list. Uh, but the way he pitched, you know, he, there was a glimmer of hope and then it all just came crashing down. Um, but I, want to, I want to ask you guys, and I'll, I'll go to you first, Rich. Can you tell me about Bill Monbouquet? Um, as I remember Bill Monbouquet, he was a pitching coach for the Mets, right guys? And, um, he, I know nothing about him as a player. You know, I, I could you know, click on the link here. Obviously, he's linked to, and I can I can look up his stats. But I remember him as a pitching coach, and um, under uh, that would be under Bamberger, which I, I, that all comes back now. Bill Mamaket was Bamberger's pitching coach. '82 is a, a, a year I like to try to forget. Uh, it was the year they got Foster, and everybody's expectations were really high. Um, George Bamberger was a disgrace as a manager. He didn't want to be there. Um, he, he made it very clear he was doing it as a favor to Frank Cashin. And he just made it like, I don't want to be here. What am I here for? And Bill Monmaquette was his pitching coach. That, that's what I remember about Bill Monmaquette. 
Well, tell me uh, some more about number 56 as you look at this, this list. What, what are some of the things that uh, come to mind? Obviously, it's a little light. It's very light. Um, I like Brian McRae as a player with the Mets. He wasn't there very long. You know, center fielder, I believe they traded him to the Cubs at one point. Um, and so, but I liked him. Um, Brian McRae, uh, you know, Hal McRae's kid, switch hitter. Didn't stick around the major leagues too long. Had some, had like, kind of like a meteoric career, like a bottle rocket. You know, he had some really, really good years in his career, but, but he, wasn't, he didn't stick around the major leagues too long. And there's Bob Apodaca, who, um, you know, when he came up, he came up like a house of fire. And, and then when his playing days were over, he came back to the Mets as a, as a pitching coach under Bobby Valentine. Um, and, uh, well, actually, no, if I look at the year here, he, was, he would be a pitching coach, you know, just before Valentine. And so it came back to the organization, that capacity. And then the other, the last one I'll comment on here is, um, is Luis Ayala. If you remember when Billy Wagner uh, was struggling, when he had his, his issues with, with, his, with his health, you know, with his elbow, right before he was diagnosed with Tommy John, he was on the DL, and the Mets had no closer. And they got Luis Ayala from Washington as an August waiver deal, and you get what you pay for because Ayala was terrible. And how that team survived the last day of the season, I have no idea, because you had Luis Ayala, who was a cast-off from the Nationals, as your closer in a pennant race. Imagine that. Um, and then finally, I'll make a quick comment on Andres Torres. I was not a big fan. I was a big Angel Pagan fan, and um, I always liked him. And Andres Torres, um, you know, they got him uh, from the Giants in, in the Pagan deal, and I, I just wasn't a big fan of his. So that, that's my, uh, my quick perusal down 56. You know, uh, um, I'll, I'll go to you first, Stephen, here. When you think about that Andres Torres deal, uh, the Angel Bagan deal, it really was about that bullpen piece, um, Ramirez. I, I'm forgetting his first name. Uh, but but at the time, you know, and, basically Andres Torres was a reclamation project for the Mets, you know, and hoping that he could uh, have that 2010 again. Um, and they needed another outfielder, of course. But if the, the crux of the deal – uh, was that that bullpen arm, and that completely fell through too. And so, looking back on it, especially for the type of obviously he he performed better after he left the Mets, but Angel Pagan was not a bad player here. Oh, Pagan was pretty good. I mean, Pagan was good with. I remember on the Cyclones, he started. He was he was a Brooklyn Cyclone. Then he, he was he was pretty good. He was. A good ball player with the Mets. He did even better once he got to the Giants. That is that is for sure. I'm not sure if you've been able to take a look at 56. Is there any of these names that pop out to you that uh, uh, maybe we haven't even talked about yet? No, the, the immortal Ty Kelly. He played well 56. <laughs> it's two weeks in a row for Ty Kelly. Good good job. He's, he's a really he's a, he's a he's a Twitter star now. He's a, He's all yeah. over the place on there. I think, and I'm um, looking at Guy Conti. He was the coach, pitching coach. Pedro Martinez's uh, surrogate father when they were in the Dodger organization. Oh wow! And then, like you know, you, and Dyer, Dyer Miller. He was a relief pitcher for the Mets. And you mentioned Bill Mambouquet. He pitched mostly, I think, for the Red Sox. I remember him as a Giant too. I think he played for San Francisco. But he was a yeah. pitching coach for the Mets. Usually, the coaches are the ones that wear these uh, mid to high fifty I mean, numbers. You know, sooner than later, well, it's fun. 
I was going to say that looking down the list, we have even another 2008 uh, unfortunate soul. Um, but, we're, you know, we'll, uh, I'll keep that uh, as a teaser there. But, yeah, uh, Mike, it's it's really, I, I, I guess Brian McRae probably takes the, the cake here. Uh, perhaps, uh, but for whatever reason, Dyer Miller is a player that sticks out in my memory because when you're that age, you know, just you're impressionable. And Dyer Miller came to the Mets in 1980, put together a fine season as a reliever with a 193 ERA. Uh, just remember him in the mix. Uh, you know, a new time with new ownership. So, uh, you know, times were changing, and a, a, a guy like that he seems to just stick out. Certain guys stick out in your memory banks from way back when, you know? Exactly. And, and Big, I'm sending you the list if you don't have it already uh, on Twitter. Um, but uh, I'm not sure if you have it in front of you right now. Uh, anything you want to comment on with some of these players, at least even what we've talked about? Well, uh, like everybody says, uh, Brian McCrae kind of sticks out as probably the best of the bunch here. Um, I think he was already uh, – one of the other fellows said that he had a meteoric, meteoric career, and I think he was already on the downside by the time he got to New York. I think he had about six or seven good years, and then he came to New York, and that was the beginning of his downside, sort of like Willie Davis, except not as good. Um, but I'll tell you the truth. If we're going to talk about New York in 56, I want to talk about Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> but uh, I'll cede I'll my time to the next guy. Um, anybody else have anything uh, on uh, 56? Going once. Going twice. Sold to the end of our show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to a Metzine podcast over the uh, the last hour and 42 minutes. We are going to end with our last word, as we always do. And, and since this is uh, the longest he's ever been on our show, I'm going to go over to Mr. Big Red Ruckus first for his last word. And also, uh, like we like to say here, shameless plug. Tell everybody where they can find you. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Big Red Ruckus. That's uh, pretty easy. Uh, guys, I want to thank you very much for letting me play in your sandbox. Uh, this is a blast, and, and I am in awe of your dedication to this team. Uh, we're only ownership as dedicated as you gentlemen. And uh, let's go, Max. Thank you so much. Yeah, at least we're, we're getting it on a football you know, we're getting our games off on a football scale right now, so that's good. Uh, and, and I'm going to go over to our other featured guest, uh, Mr. Stephen Keene, uh, formerly of the Crane Pole Society. Tell everybody where they can find you right now. Well, you can find me on Twitter, and it's my handle is at Crane Pole from Ed Crane Pool. And I just want to say it's a privilege and an honor to be with Big Red here tonight. He's one of my favorite followers that I have on Twitter. So uh, it was nice to, uh, to to have him in the discussion here this evening. Back at you. Excellent. It was, it was great to have you guys pairing on here. It, it, what an excellent show. Uh, let, let's, oh, man, I, I, I just, you know, we can keep this up forever. We can always talk baseball. 
But, man, wouldn't this be great to be like, yeah, man, I, like, Pete Alonso had such a great swing last night. Or Je- Jeff McNeil, man, do you see the way he golfed that one? Uh, gee, oh, man, Brom, you just got that slider in there. Mike, that's, that's all I want right now. I hear you. You know, we all want a piece of normalcy, but uh, all I'll say is pay attention. Uh, history is unfolding before our very eyes. Don't wait to read it in a history book in social studies class one day. Uh, it's happening right now, so pay attention. Pay attention to the details. That's my message. I like the focus. Rich? Well, I'll just emphasize what Verducci said. You know, I don't think we're being over dramatic to say that the next week or 10 days, very critical in the history of Major League Baseball. Like Mike said, history is, is being history is being made in a lot of different ways, not all of them very good. But when it comes to baseball in specific, what happens in the next week to 10 days is really going to have a, a lasting impact on this game, and I only hope that the people who have to make the decisions that will come out in the next week to 10 days are thinking about that and, and – not being myopic, thinking you know a little bit beyond the immediate horizon, and find a way to figure this out because um, it, this is a big decision, folks. It, it's big in a lot of ways. We have to get it right, so everybody to be safe and healthy, and then we have to get it done. Get it right and get it done. Here, here. Now, ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you for listening to a Messian podcast. All I will say is, let's meet somewhere in the middle. Let's get this done and play some baseball. And the only other way that we can end this is let's go Mets. Hopefully we can say that to their face or at least the television very, very soon. Thank you all. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.